Welcome to Conversations with Thought Leaders. Here's your host, David Webley. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, it's Wednesday, the 10th of March, 12 p.m. here in Melbourne. Hi, Ken. Good afternoon. Hi, David. Nice to be here. Great. Well, welcome to Conversations with Thought Leaders, a platform we've created to link community with inspirational people. Um, myself, I'm David Webley from Granite Consulting, as well as Conversations with Thought Leaders. Um, the war for talent certainly back in full swing. Organisations are busier than ever before working out how to attract and retain the best talent. You know, what does the new world look like, uh, you know, mid post pandemic soon, hopefully. Um, feel free to get in touch with, the, with us if you want to talk about trends or indeed, you know, career opportunities. So on to the show. Today I'm joined and delighted to be with uh, Professor Ken Sloan, the Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Senior Vice-President Enterprise of Monash University. Um, so a bit about Ken, uh, for those that don't know him. He's been with Monash University for over four years. And he's responsible, he's responsible for university-wide leadership, strategic support for major partnerships, government relations, precinct development, new revenue development, commercialization, innovation, and entrepreneurship, group governance, and institutional risk. And in his spare time, he's also a, a professor in the Department of Management in the Faculty of Business and Economics. Fair bit to keep you busy there, Ken. Yeah, it's always funny when you hear it played back. Uh, you wonder how you fit it into the week, but uh, there's always people who are busier than me. Fantastic. And prior to uh, Monash University, Ken was the Chief Operating Officer for Warwick University in the UK. Um, prior to that, in, uh, he was a Global Director with the international services firm Serco, and also Associate Dean and Advisor to the Stephen A. Schwartzman Education Foundation based in Beijing, China. Is chaired and serves on numerous boards and fundraising trusts. Currently, he's on the board of BioCurate and he's the chair of the Victorian Heart Institute Strategic Advisory Board. So, we're delighted to be discussing, uh, discussing leader, leadership through adversity with Professor Ken Sloan today. Just a couple of housekeeping things before we get into it. Chat functions open to everyone. So interested to know, to check, we all know how to use the chat function. Um, for those of you who are spending time back in the office, how many days a week are you going back in? Um, also, the Q&A is open for questions at any time during the conversations. No such thing as a bad uh, question. Um, certainly, uh, if you've got anything to add or you need clarification on anything, just please fire the questions through. Um, Ken, how are you finding uh, with the, the office and the virtual working? So I started going back into the office properly a couple of weeks ago for the first time since last March. Um, yeah. Firstly, it was really strange when I bumped into people. I couldn't remember that it's over a year, it's over a year since the last time I was in a room with them. Yeah. Um, but also I realized just how hard it was to get organized, to get out of the door. So I'd go down to the car, forget half the things, come back, go back to the car, get yeah. and then when I went into the office, did the same thing. So uh, I empathize with anyone who's found it a bit of an interesting transition. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a few people back in one or two days, people have enjoyed some networking. I definitely think that humanistic uh, take up four days a week, some people. So we're certainly finding it, most companies is pretty 
half and half or thereabouts. You know, we've certainly had a bit of a, a soft return to work policy. But I, I personally think having your immediate team together for some time, the human to human energy is really important. I agree. Um, so into uh, into our conversation. So could you share a bit of your backstory, please, Ken, for those who may not know you already? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. I uh, grew up in a place called Wallasey, which most people wouldn't know about, but is uh, a little town outside Liverpool in the United Kingdom. Went to university in Glasgow in Scotland. Um, spent some of my university time in New York State, uh, upstate in New York, which was great. And then eventually left, went to live and settle in Birmingham and Coventry. And yeah. uh, Started initially in accountancy, didn't really settle into accountancy, so moved into the university sector and had a fairly broad general management and leadership career uh, there. And as you say, left to join Serco uh, for a couple of years and then moved back into uh, the university sector. And also from that point, um, I had an opportunity to go to China before I moved over to Australia. And, um, and that was fascinating as well. So interesting um, life in lots of different parts of the UK and different parts of the world. And I think um, from memory, you did an arts degree to start with before going into accountancy, didn't you? Was it an English degree? <laughs> yeah, I did an English degree. Um, I mean, Glasgow had a fairly broad curriculum, so used to do combination of arts with some social sciences and some other things, but um, ultimately I specialised in uh, English language and literature. Yeah, it's interesting. I did an English degree myself, but then I guess, how did you find, did you find on reflection doing an arts-based degree and then, you know, moving to accountancy and, you know, economic type activities, did that sort of give you a bit more of a balanced view perhaps? I think so. I, I think the two things it did was, because I hadn't done accountancy before, I had to learn it from scratch and therefore you apply yourself fully to it. And Interestingly then, a lot of companies would preference arts graduates over accountancy graduates because they brought a broad set of skills, which uh, I would argue is still really valuable in, in the world of work now. Yeah, absolutely. I think having that sort of balanced mindset, and a lot of companies deliberately hire people from different educational environments, right? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I mean, different people, the experience they've had at university is broadly similar and standard, but every university has a different approach to how it applies its education. So if you've got a diverse workforce, both in terms of the education they have and also gender, race, sexuality, et cetera, you're gonna get a diversity of thought, which is obviously helpful for every organization. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so what were your motivations and some of your impressions, you know, moving from Australia, uh, from the UK to Australia via China? How did all that come about? So the, in, in all honesty, the motivation for moving to Australia was initially a personal one that my partner, Dan, had moved over uh, to Australia five years beforehand. And uh, so we got used to being on either side of the world and made, ultimately made the decision that Australia was where we were going to land. Yeah. Uh, when I left Warwick, I originally planned to take six months off before I came over to Australia to start looking for a job. And, uh, but the opportunity through the Schwarzman Scholars Program came to go to Beijing and to Tsinghua University in Beijing. And that was great. It was a brand new international program. And the thing about China was I'd, I'd been to China a lot, but I'd never worked there. So I didn't know how to actually lead a Chinese team in terms of work. And the other thing I had was I didn't have any uh, Chinese language as well. So really had to 
find some allies in the country to help me to work and, and learn how to work. Uh, but it was great. I, I really I got to understand much more about Chinese culture and Chinese working ethics uh, and, and obviously made some great friends. In terms of Australia, the thing I would say is um, it would be very easy to fall into the trap of saying that we've got the same language, so we've got the same history. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Australia has got similar language to uh, the UK, but uh, often uses the words very differently to how the UK would use them. Um, I found myself at times where I've used phrases in Australia which have met the complete opposite of what they I thought they meant. So that's been interesting. Um, but also a hugely distinctive culture and a really precious history in Australia, which I think anyone who moves here really needs to spend the time to understand um, in order to really uh, get to know people and, and, and thrive in this environment. Yeah, I'm interested to know. So moving from, you know, uh, Warwick University through to China, if we can just drill into that a bit more. What did you have to do? I mean, I know you touched on it around finding allies and not speaking the language, but what are some of the main differences you noticed in the leadership styles and how were you effective in that environment? So I think I got so used to people being able to read cues yeah. in the UK. So um, there's a lot of uh, unsaid cues. There's, there's verbal cues, there's visual cues you can give to people. Um, there's certain words you can use in your uh, if you if you're running a program group or a project group, there's certain things you can say, and you know that when you come back together, certain things will have happened. Uh, I remember one particular time uh, in China where I was listing off a series of tasks uh, that needed to be done because we were working under a lot of pressure because the college was going to open within a couple of weeks. What I hadn't done was made it explicit that the tasks were for each individual around the table. So I went away thinking that all these things were being done. Um, and what happened in practice was people thought I'd given them a long list of things that I was going to do. So I suddenly realized that in order to um, engage properly, I had to be much clearer in what I wanted. I also needed to be much more explicit in what I said. Uh, but um, it didn't, eventually someone took me to one side and said, if you want something done, you need to firstly say what you want done who needs to do it and when you want it done it by. And once that happened, uh, it became a lot easier. Yeah, so really starting up a sort of a, a university and starting up a business, <laughs> I guess similar processes, but something to pick up on there. I mean, I've done a lot of work throughout the region and you, know, you quite often see there's a more hierarchical nature with management and leadership in yeah. businesses. And would you find that in the education environment in China yeah. as well? Yeah, you would. There's a, a huge amount of respect between different levels of management. And um, and as, as I said before, the really important thing is if you're going to fit in and it's important that you need to know that you need to fit in, it's their environment, it's, their, it's a different culture and you really do need to understand uh, the differences. So here I sit today without a tie on in the vast majority of Chinese meetings, they don't wear ties, except in particular settings or if there are particular people in the room. If there are senior politicians in the room or there are senior people from the university, uh, it would be unusual not to dress more formally. Uh, yeah. You need to understand that in order to uh, both settle in well, but also for your role and your place to be accepted. So do you think there's more of a deferential treatment between students and professors? And do you think that's what I know we're gonna to come to, you know, 
the elephant in the room at some point, I'm sure, about you know international students in Australia, and obviously the pandemic's been challenging for so many sectors. But yeah. do you think that's one of the reasons why a more of a perhaps a collegiate environment in the US, the UK, or Australia is attractive, perhaps? I, I think the main reason it's attractive is because people want to get an international perspective on both their education and also their prospects for the future. Uh, there are some systems of education where the use of lectures is much more prominent. So, and, and lectures tend to be fairly, in some systems, they tend to be fairly passive. You have someone who delivers content, you have people who listen to it. Uh, what I saw when I was at Tsinghua University was a really significant investment in what we would call collegiate, collaborative, discursive education. And the new college was a really good example of that, where instead of just simply showing deference to an academic at the front of the room, there was a real attempt to engage the learners and to reverse the teaching and learning cycle so that the learners were actively participating and also actively curating the education experience that they were getting. But, but it is absolutely true to say in some systems, that's a new thing. And, and the more we can mix up the populations, the, the better it is to be able to share different types of learning and teaching. I've certainly noticed in corporates, and I think it's one of the best examples was Lloyd's of London, which is probably about as old school as an insurance institution as you can get. Mm. The concept of reverse mentoring. And I remember there was a piece I was reading with, um, with a few of their execs talking about getting basically entry level underwriters who understand, you know, social media and the new way of working to reverse mental people who are at different, you know, latter stages of their careers. Yeah, and that's something I've actively encouraged. I, I gave a talk in Melbourne a couple of years ago and we were talking about mentoring relationships. And I think people were expecting me to get up and talk about the uh, people I had mentored. And actually I told the story of a 25 year old mentor that I had. And I just said that I may be 48 years old, but I do not know now what it feels like to see the world through the eyes of a 20 year old, a 25 year old. And, um, and it's been really beneficial to me to have access to someone who can challenge me, challenge my own uh, perceptions, because in any leadership role, we are trying to create the environment where the people can succeed and thrive. And the only way to do that is by having insight into what it is that drives them, what it is that motivates them, how are they going to be productive? And if I think back to a Warwick example, I remember uh, a member of staff approaching me. Uh, they'd been at the university for three years, and then they came to talk to me about wanting a career break. And um, you know, my initial reaction was, you've been here for three years and you want a career break. Um, and uh, some of my other colleagues who might have been uh, even more traditionally focused than I was, uh, said, surely your career break is your retirement that comes at the end. And, um, but actually, this was the structure that people wanted. They wanted to do three to five years of work. They wanted to go off and broaden their horizons and come back. And as an employer, you've got a choice. Do you embrace that and embrace the learning that people bring back? Um, or do you stay with a more traditional model and potentially pass on that talent to someone else? And we decided we needed to be flexible. Yeah, so that sort of brings us into, I guess, talking about the new way we're all working and, you know, traditional um, way of working with people, clock in, clock out, which I guess kind of started in the Industrial Revolution a few hundred years ago. You know, that concept around 
managing via accountability accountables and and deliverables as opposed to time and attendance really so can you talk a bit around your philosophies of that yeah so in a university environment in, in a university environment there's going to be um, a broad range of people who are working and therefore you've got to be able to um be flexible enough to accommodate very lots and lots of different types of learner and lots of worker in lots of different types of styles. I understand in some organizations that they may have a preferred way of working and they may have organized themselves around that and that might have been easier to do. And yeah. I think the big change that's happened during this COVID period is that we've had to rely on the generosity of people to take us into their home. They, they, they have brought us into their lives and you know we've seen everything there are so many films of um different parts of people's lives invading i'm sitting here waiting for two puppies to start barking at any point which i'm hoping they won't necessarily do um so i think there are always going to be environments where the focus on the task is necessary you need to know where people are you need to know what they're doing how they're doing it uh quality assuring that etc uh, but where we can show flexibility for employees and where we can show an ability to flex around the lives that people have got, um, we should consider that. And I know at Monash University, that's what we, we've done. Where we can show flexibility, we've committed that we will show flexibility in the future. Yeah. Yeah, someone said to me, you know, have we been working from home or living at work in the last year or so? And it kind of really resonated with me. I thought, yeah, that's I agree. I, I agree. And I, I think if you think about it a year ago, if someone was sitting on a Zoom like this at home and their child or their dog or someone else walked in, uh, their first moment would be devastating. The second moment is they would assume it was going to happen. And uh, I mean, I, I've sat in executive committee meetings at Monash with my puppy on the desk because it was the only way to keep them quiet. And um, Pete, everyone has had to adjust. Yeah, fantastic. What sort of dog have you got, by the way? Uh, I've got two Cavalier King Charleses. So um, yeah, we've got a Cavoodle in lockdown. Yeah, so yeah. So, so I've got I've got a Cavoodle, but with one that sheds hair. Is the uh, way I put it. Got it. No problem. Um, I was reading something you you commented on in 2016, Ken, that you were talking about 2016 being a a particularly pivotal year in global events. Can you elaborate on this, please? Yeah. I suppose the reason why it was pivotal on a personal level, I was going through a big transition. I um, made a decision to leave an employer after a long period of time and also I was making a decision to leave country. So maybe I was a bit more receptive to what was happening in the world. But if you think about 2016, uh, it was the year that uh, Donald Trump got elected. It was the year that the UK voted for Brexit. Um, we also had the Paris Climate Change Agreement there was a spate of terrorist attacks that were happening uh, in mainland Europe in different places. In Australia, there was a very uh, vociferous debate about uh, marriage equality going on. Um, and if you think about that time, I think there was a general view uh, portrayed in uh, a lot of areas that Trump would not get elected. So there was almost a presumption that Trump would not get elected. There was almost a presumption that Brexit wouldn't happen. And then people who thought they were part of the majority opinion or were the dominant view found themselves in a completely uh, different position. So I think that it was a time 
where some orthodoxies that people had assumed were dominant um, and wrongly assumed were dominant. They, they, these things that had happened in terms of the emergence of the support for Donald Trump and the emergence of support for Brexit had been visible for many years, but I don't think they'd ever been accepted as being mainstream. And then suddenly in 2016, in different parts of the world, people find themselves in a situation where they had to do that. And, and I think that's let, created a, a basis on which people have had to really reconsider and rethink what's happening in their country, what matters in their country, um, and also uh, what it means for them in terms of what they the views they hold and the uh, decisions they take. I certainly found it a very grounding year in terms of uh, what it really encouraged me to rethink what I really understood was important. Yeah. And I think it's caused, you know, it's exposed a lot of divisions in society, really. And then, of course, last year with, you know, COVID, which we, which we all know about, and, and the Black Lives Matters movement as well. You know, one of my concerns that I see is that coming through the other side, I mean, you have to look at vaccinations. I mean, vaccination is a global issue, not a national issue, right? But yeah. we've been forced to close all our borders. None of us are travelling anymore, which is just a crazy thing if I said to you, you know, 18 months ago, you're not going to be able to fly, you yeah. wouldn't get your head around it. And and now my one of my concerns is we might result in a lot more sort of nationalistic type behaviour going forwards. Yeah, I think I think that's the, the risk of that is genuinely true. And I was watching the headlines today where um, there seems to be some glee that Scotland has announced some uh, relaxing of restrictions uh, in the UK and and then Boris Johnson is saying that he can't do that within England and won't do that within England. Um, I think the risk is to the citizen and how they are able to take a steer from those in authority. People want clarity in, in the time of a crisis. They don't want competing political interests to be uh, in play. And then if I think about it through another lens, uh, I've got a friend called David who um, lives in Uganda. He's a Ugandan. And, um, whilst everyone else is worrying about the access to vaccines and as a presumption, they assume they're coming. Um, having a conversation with him, he, he just doesn't even know, if, are they coming? So we've got huge swathes of disadvantaged communities that actually don't have the luxury of some of the conversations that we're having. We're, we're assuming that we will get a vaccine, we'll assume when we'll get a vaccine. Um, I think we do need to return and I know through the COVAX program, that is what we're trying to do. We do need to return to a point where when it's something that affects society so materially as COVID has done, that we work collectively in order to make sure that we get as many people back to uh, some degree of normality as quickly as we can. And of course, um, you know, on the subjects of vaccines, you know, universities have never been more front and central in their, you know, vaccine development plans. I mean, you've got the Oxford University, AstraZeneca, and, yeah. and um, you know, interested, you must be proud to see how the educational establishments and the R&D, <laughs> you know, parts within them have responded to the challenge. Yeah, I mean, that, that's been really rewarding and heartening to see, not only in vaccines, vaccines have been obviously essential and you'll see that continue over the years ahead. There are teams all over the world that are working out what happens next with these vaccines and you'll see more of that come through uh, Australia as well as you're seeing in other parts of the world. You've seen it in medical technology, the 
uh, changes to the way PPE's been developed. The also just the whole issue about how you track and sequence who's had a vaccine, what happens, the big data that sits behind that um, ha has been really closely connected to universities. And at the moment, there's, uh, you know, there's a, a question being raised. Uh, the minister, Touch, the Minister for Education in uh, Australia has uh, recently put out a consultation paper on commercialization and translation of university research. And I think it's fantastic that we can point to really strong, tangible examples yeah. of where that research is being translated. Uh, but obviously we want to do even more of that. And, and that's what all universities are committed to doing uh, with their partners uh, over the years ahead. Amazing. So that's something that uh, takes up a fair bit of your time at Monash and working with, you know, the R&D and the, you know, working with partners. Yeah, so we've um, a combination of things. You mentioned before, I'm on the board of Biocurate. That was and is a company that was set up by both Monash University and the University of Melbourne to accelerate the translation of drugs into um, the market. So working with uh, industry and working with funders so that we can take things that were developed within laboratories and universities and accelerate how we get them into patients and make their lives better. But we're doing that right across the board, whether it's supporting the transition to net zero so that we're having a better impact and a safer impact on the world. Um, whether we're looking at the future of food, the future of agriculture, um, also in really uh, tangible policy areas. So people often look at commercialization through products. So they look at products and services, but you've also got to think about policies have a big effect on people. So uh, we've got a center for gender and family violence that has been working really hard through COVID to expose quickly what are the additional risks that people at risk are facing and what are the actions that can be taken. Um, the one point I would say, and I can't let this bit go without saying it, is that a lot of the um, translation we're able to do today is because of research that's been invested in over many years. So uh, as well as focusing on translation, we've also got to make sure we continue to invest in fundamental discovery research because it's that which then enables us to take these things and translate them out into society. So it's that concept of always investing, always keep moving. And I was listening to um, a podcast with Eddie Jones, the uh, Australian who coaches the English rugby team yesterday on the High Performance Podcast. And he was talking about all businesses, institutions, sports teams go from failure to success to failure. Yeah. It's going to happen. So how do you minimize the failure window and maximize your chances of success? I guess it's kind of doing what you've just said. You've always got to be keep going, keep moving, keep trying to push forwards. That, that, so you, you want to have a continuous pipeline of things to be able to develop and test and trial. Um, and that's why I think a long term strategy investing in research, not just in universities, but in companies and others is really important. Uh, the other thing, though, is you've got to have a culture that can cope with failure. That yeah. um, the, the fact of the matter is that if you um, of all the ideas you put forward for translation, there's only going to be relatively few that follow all the way through to have the impact that you're having. If your natural culture is to think that failure is a negative yeah. and that you should see people as underperforming because their idea has failed, then you'll have a shortage of ideas. And it's really important that we encourage people to try. And one of the things we've been talking about a lot in recent years is we have to do that in the school system in order to be able to bring that through to um, not just universities and TAFE, but also 
into the employee and employment market as well. And uh, yeah, really important to have the right cultures so that people don't feel that a failure has actually destroyed them in any way or destroyed their credibility. It's just something that's happened and they take their idea capability and move on to the next one. Can you share any practical advice though? Because I, I, I completely get that and I agree with it. And, yeah. you know, but what can a lot of the people tuning in today will be in, you know, uh, hiring, hiring manager positions or, you know, senior positions within organizations, but how can you sort of introduce some of that into an organization that hasn't got that mindset? So um, two things, I think leadership and how you react to things that happen uh, is a really good example of that. Um, so I've seen examples of where leaders have said they have a, a culture or they want to have a culture uh, where they um, ex want people to experiment and they want them to try. Um, but when they bring forward the ideas, they don't encourage them. Or yeah. even worse than that, in other areas, um, they overreact to things which are frankly just day-to-day -day events. Um, so if you want to create that culture, I think you've got to do it authentically and systematically. You've yeah. got to have a mechanism inside your organization to invite people to bring those ideas forward. Um, but then you've got to think carefully about how you react to failure. Now, I understand if you're a small business, a very small business, particularly a startup or a spin-out, um, you may be focused on such a narrow area that you can't really tolerate failure. Yeah. All I can say is I can hope that, that prior to it becoming a startup or a spin-out, that you've had enough support to really road test that idea and yeah. really test whether, is there a market there? Or is there a customer base there? Have you actually got the right skills and capability to do that and, and deliver that? Um, but I do think leadership matters that if you, I remember in a previous uh, role that we were getting ready to submit a massive data return. It had taken three weeks to put it together. And the person who brought, who was ready to press the button, probably three hours away from pressing the button, came in to tell me that they couldn't find it and it disappeared. They couldn't, so they assumed they must have deleted it. I had a choice as a leader how to react to that. I could either make that situation really difficult for them, um, or I could dive in with them to try and help them to solve it. And, that, and ultimately that's what I tried to do. So I think our personal style in how we react can have a really dominant effect on, um, on how our employees and our partners and our teams react to, to bringing forward ideas. So I think if you can build some of that into your leadership style, but also think systematically in your organization, are you genuinely encouraging people to think differently? Are you genuinely encouraging them to bring forward ideas? Because um, it's easy to say, but it's not so easy to do. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And you've sort of got to look within, which is one of the big you know, concepts of yoga, that you can only really control what how you react to something. You can't really control what other people do, can you? You've just got to yeah. focus on your human reaction to it. Yeah. And, and I think really what I would say is when people go into an employment situation in the beginning of their time, that can often have a fundamental effect on how they behave much later as well. So I often think that um, when people are working with more junior staff who just joined the organization, they are a really good set of ambassadors that can help to champion the culture you're trying to get to. And, um, but often they're not the ones that you think about the impact of what you say. 
So you've seen numerous examples of where um, you, you'll see a more junior member of staff who doesn't feel either valued or they don't feel like their voice is heard. Actually, if you, I think if you create mechanisms through which you de deliberately and overtly listen to their voices, the payback for the organization can be massive, but also you're going to fire off a set of people who are going to take a different culture through your organization as well. So working virtually, has that made having a great organizational culture harder, easier, or just different? So I think, I think all, it's probably a completely unsatisfactory answer, David, but to say, <laughs> I'm going to say all of them in some ways. So, um, reason why I say that is because I've spoken to some people recently who joined our organization pre-COVID and then joined some people um, during COVID and, um, and, and tried to get a sense of the difference between their experience. And uh, one of the things that the people who uh, joined pre-COVID said was, of course, you get to pick up on the uh, environment, you get to pick up on, you know, where are people? Who do you bump in? Where, how do you bump into people? Um, who are significant people in the organization? And um, how are just resources organized in the organization? How do you get things done? That's a lot easier to do when you're physically bumping into people and interacting with people. At the same time, some people who joined during COVID said that they think they managed to get meetings with people that they really would have struggled to get meetings with them face to face because people have found it easier to just click in and out for 15 minutes. It's easy as part of someone's induction process to spend 10 minutes with them, 15 minutes with them. If you try to replicate that in the face-to-face -face environment, um, then, then you've also got to build in the fact that people have got travel time, commute time, movement time, uh, et cetera. So, so I think there's genuine limitations to online working, but they are easily balanced with genuine benefits. And, what I hope is that for most organizations, they find the right midpoint that's, uh, that's appropriate for the organization that they're, they're in. And uh, as we said before, if that en enables them to establish some flexibility, then that would be a positive thing. Yeah, absolutely. So with leadership through adversity, and I was, um, I was checking out an interview with Nike CEO, and he was talking about uh, John Donahue, how he really switched his leadership style yeah. Or in COVID and, you know, they've got thousands and thousands of stores that they had to close and they went from being, you know, basically factory direct to consumer versus to stores and out. And they really sort of centralised and it was speaking really around clarity of message yeah. and how they had to double down and really pivot quickly and be ultra focused. What's your views around the changing leadership style that's been required in the last 12 months? So I think... Um, there has been an urgency to act for most organizations. Uh, so most organizations, uh, if they used to have a model of either consultation or extensive consultation prior to change, uh, will not have had the luxury of being able to do that. So if I think about it in the tertiary education sector, and uh, not just in Australia, but around the world, people had a matter of weeks to effectively move their entire model of doing education and most of their research to a virtual model. In a previous time, we probably would have discussed that for a long time before we made that happen. And so what it needed was clarity of the urgency of it, um, but also mobilizing the appropriate support to make it happen. 
Um, and that involved also listening to people and making sure that their views have been uh, taken into account, but still with a focus on urgency. The second thing I think that's been relevant is that if you think about the people we're working with, we said before, in order for, to carry on doing what we're doing, we've had to go into people's homes. And um, the boundary between their life and their work has become more blurred, I think, than it ever has been uh, before. And we really look to employees to show generosity to the organization in letting them in. I think that's required leadership, which is uh, authentic. So I think it's required leaders to be very open, not only about what the organization is going through, but actually to give some insight as to what they are going through, to be willing to share the experience they're going through. And I would call out the vice chancellor of my own university on that. I think she's uh, maintained a very open and frank exchange with uh, staff over the last 12 months. Uh, and as a result of that, I think staff have had clarity over what it is we're doing and why we need uh, to do it. So I think it's been a combination of real clarity and focus urgency, clear communication when change has been needed and taken forward. Um, but I think it's also been a time where empathetic leadership has also been necessary. Uh, yeah. People have really wanted to know that their leaders in organizations understand that their day-to-day -day has not been easy, that um, they're having to balance different uh, challenges and conflicts much more visibly in front of their employer than they've ever done before and they've wanted to hear from their employers that that is understood. And, and I think the organizations that have done that uh, will have got a really positive reaction from their employees, regardless of how tough the situation was they were facing. We've also noticed, and you know, we're lucky in that you know, our business is in around technology and technology's been a big winner in the pandemic. Yeah. But the whole mindfulness, mental health mm. piece is something that we've, spent a lot of time on yeah. and I would imagine with you know the thousands of university students at, at Monash ensuring you know a connection and a mental wellness and just not being isolated and lonely must be something that's been top of mind for you. Yeah so we've got a, a an, an institute called the Turner Institute for Mental Health and uh, they launched a survey called the Thrive Survey this year uh, which was initially targeted at students and then moved to be targeted at staff and is now being moved out to other organisations. And this was to really check in with students initially to uh, really understand what that sense of isolation was doing to them and what, what it meant in terms of their education. Now, now, interestingly enough, it's entirely possible, it can often happen, that if someone is not able to do certain things, so... In Melbourne, we know that we went through a tough lockdown period where we had limitations to when, where we could go and when we could go, et cetera. There is a genuine risk in times like that that people overwork, that they, they don't have other distractions. So once they've dealt with what's happening in their family and with their care responsibilities, that they focus overtly on work. And that in itself can cause tiredness, exhaustion, uh, stress, anxiety, not being able to walk away from the computer but sitting on your desk all the time. Um, and I, I, I don't think that just applies to uh, data employees within the organization. I think it applies to leaders as well. So, so we did a very concerted, deliberate intervention so we could track that. Um, 
And what we found was that, um, of course, it was the case that it was having a significant mental health impact on our students, but it also showed us the strategies they were using to be resilient and the creative ways in which they were looking after their well-being and using, you know, again, using online environments, using online communities, uh, whether it was cooking, exercising, language learning, singing, all these different ways of broadening new communities, both within the student community and across uh, different sectors came, came to life. So I, I don't think people just sat back and let it happen. I think they really uh, looked at ways to try and manage the impact on them. Absolutely. So with, you know, higher education, it's obviously, you know, we, we know the international students aren't here at the moment. So how do you see that playing out? And do you think it would be a combination of people back in country? And will you have to offer more remote learning experiences? So I think certainly coming into 2022, the, the international students who are in the country will be able to participate in uh, the education that we're able to offer on our campuses. So we're now in a position where the campuses are broadly open and we've got uh, activities and um, COVID safe activities across the campus, both in education and, and, and social. Um, but those students who've not been able to come into Australia, um, we, we've had to continue to find ways to um, teach them remotely and also not just focus on teaching and learning, but also building that social infrastructure because yeah. that's a big part of what universities uh, do. Now, at this moment in time, we'll have some people who uh, studied online last year and are coming into studying online this year. And we genuinely do hope with the onset of the vaccine distribution uh, that, that we will be able to look to the government for clarity over at least an indicative timescale for uh, students to uh, come back. And the reason why that's important is because, as we know, this is an international competition for talent. And um, the, the UK has remained broadly open, Canada has remained broadly open, and the US has remained broadly open. And uh, fairly soon, we'll have extensive vaccination programs uh, continuing to roll out in different places. Uh, so we want to be able to give a clear signal to international students that face-to-face -face learning will be an integral part of their, their education and will be an integral part of the experience that we can offer them. At the same time, though, we do genuinely want to make sure that we give them the best possible experience uh, digitally and virtually uh, while we can. Um, we, we understand the constraints, but we really do hope there will be a concerted effort to uh, getting students uh, safely back into uh, their places of ed education. So not only the universities benefit, but we benefit through retail and leisure and theatre and culture and arts and sports, all these other parts of the economy that benefit from having students as part of the city. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, having gone to university and be part of the community, but then students bring an awful lot into Australia. So do you think there's a real, you know, I think the tyranny of distance of Australia has helped us greatly in the last year, right? We're a big island in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. But do you think the longer that these other, mm. you know, attractive destinations such as the US, Canada, UK mentioned, remain broadly open and we remain largely closed mm. as time goes on you know there's already a skill shortage in Australia that yeah. might be exasperated. So I think there is a risk of that if we don't bring clarity to the intention to bring students back and and 
that that I think that the messaging on this is really important. That um, we need to make it clear that it is our intention to have vibrant international communities as part of our education, as part of our workplaces um, for the future. Um, the, the underpinning thing though is that universities in Australia are high quality institutions. If you have a look at the top 100 universities in the world, um, at least seven of them come from Australia. If you have a look at the size of the Australian population, that's a massive achievement for Australia over time. And yeah. that's a sign of not only continued support uh, through the development of research and innovation, but it does show that it's been a significant go-to destination uh, for high quality education. And, and I'm confident that that will still be the case. It's just that the competition will become ever more fierce if we don't give that very clear message that we see vibrant cosmopolitan international communities as an integral part of the education that we offer. And uh, you know, universities are saying that, um, our governments are saying it, but what we need to do is translate it into uh, action and and give some indication as to um, as soon as we can get those borders open, we will get them open and we'll bring people in. I suppose that comes back to really clarity of communication and leadership, right? It does. It does. The the key thing there is um, I I'm always a bit careful about calling out um, a politician because yeah, of course. And, and the reason I'm careful about that is uh, it's solely because I know in any leadership position I've got no one really has my perspective on that day. So I don't know what they've got on their desk at any one point in time. Uh, the, and I know at the moment that there is a balance trying to be struck between bringing Australians home, those people who want to come back home and get them back safely, and then opening the borders more generally. Um, but I think a key thing here is that this is one of Australia's biggest success stories in terms of exports. Yeah. Like, young age education for internationals and also uh, tertiary and ongoing education uh, for international students and international markets. And this isn't an either or with Australia. I think Australia, the, the education of an Australian student is broadened and diversified by the diversity of the population they are taught with. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's what we see as a key benefit. Not only does it provide us with access to the skills we need as a country, um, but it also creates that empathy and an understanding of different cultures, different perspectives. Um, and that's what you need, I think, to be a global leader. I, I think you need it as a country to be a global leader. I think if you're a, an employer, that's what you need to have a global insight. You need to be exposed to the cultures and behaviors of different types of um, country and culture and, and hopefully benefit from them. Yeah, I think the richness of diversity makes us all better. Yeah. So what's your view around countries, businesses, individuals that you've looked to in the last year or so and thought, you know, they've, been, they've done it really well. Can you talk to us a bit around some of the inspirational things you find? So I think if we have a look, firstly, I'll, I'll just say upfront, any, anyone who's been in any company, organisation, university, and has really faced up to just how difficult it's been and tried to find a way through it. Um, I take my hat off to everyone who's done that. I know how hard that's been within the tertiary education sector, and I'm sure it's been incredibly hard in lots of different areas. I um, think just some examples of where 
you, if you think just in Australia and Melbourne is known for its arts and its culture and its food and its coffee and you know, all of these things which we've taken for granted as being part of our day-to-day -day life and just how people have inverted their business models. So the way in which they've gone from being um, in venue spaces to virtual spaces or uh, so you've seen the movement of arts and culture online. You've seen rapidly ways in which they've tried to help um, people to be able to earn a living by moving to online rather than just in a face-to-face -face environment. Um, there are restaurants and places that people will have experienced in their home that they would never have got access to. Yeah. Um, there are you know, meals and menus and things that people have tested and tried. Um, but the thing that's obvious is that that agility is not available to everyone. For some people, they are highly uh, capital intensive, they're highly resource intensive. So the ability to just flick a switch and be able to do something different um, is a challenge. But if we think about in Australia and in Victoria, we've seen uh, advanced manufacturing firms working with universities, working with clinicians on new models of PPE. So instead of accepting that uh, PPE and health PPE shortages, they've actually changed what they run their uh, machines and tools with in order to create new models of PPE. Um, we've got an institute of uh, medical engineering that works across multiple faculties. And one of the things that they were looking at very early was how can they work with companies in Victoria on expanding the availability of ventilators and how do they, uh, and not just um, new ventilators, but how do we adapt ventilators we've already got so they can support more than one patient? Yeah. Um, in, in that space. Uh, so I think it's been genuinely a really uh, interesting time for people. Uh, the hard challenge though is when you're dealing with the day-to-day -day of a crisis, how do you carve out the time to think about alternatives when you might be seeing the money falling out the bottom and, and yet what the only solution to that is either to cut or to earn and, and, and bring things back. And uh, but we've got plenty of examples of uh, organizations and sectors that have managed to do that. And what are some of the techniques personally that you've introduced to enable you to do that when you're looking at, you know, to balance that scenario just described? Um, I think to acknowledge that there's only a finite amount of time in the week and you can either be run by events or you can structure that time. So uh, it's very easy during a crisis to say, I, I've just got to deal with everything that comes in. I've got to look at my emails every minute of the day and I've got to be in response mode. Uh, in a leadership position, the organization needs more than that. It needs you to be in recovery mode as well as in response mode. So the way I've done it personally is I've structured my time in such a way. Um, and, also, and some weeks it doesn't work. Some weeks the requirements of what's required day to day take it all over. But I've actively looked back at the end of every week and I've asked myself the question, how much time am I dealing with today? And how much time am I dealing with what we need next for uh, the next stage of what's happening in? And we've been encouraged as leaders within Monash to do that, to think very proactively about the next stage of what we're doing, as well as the live crisis that's being managed uh, in the situation. And if you don't do that actively, you yeah. will be run by today. There's no, there's no question. And I, I was taught um, some years ago to look at my diary through three horizons. Yeah. So horizon one being what I do today and what I might need to do today. 
yeah, Horizon Team is the opportunity I might be able to do as a result of being better organized today. Horizon yeah. 3 are the developments I might get to if I sort my other stuff out. And um, uh, what I've tried to do in the different jobs is periodically just look at my time and ask myself, how much Horizon 3 time am I really getting? Yeah. And, and if I'm not getting that Horizon 3 time, I have it's on me to organize myself better uh, to make that possible because that's what the organization wants me to do. It, it wants me to manage the day-to-day, but it also wants me to be part of that collaborative leadership that plots a future. Um, but it doesn't happen by accident. You have to design it into the way you work. That's fantastic gold for all leaders, you know, tuning in today. So it's let's just recap that. So it's Horizon 1, Horizon 2, and Horizon 3. Can you just go over those again? Because that was, you know, that's taking the to-do list to the next level. So Horizon 1 for me is very much... Um, I don't actively have to think about it. This is all coming to me. So it's coming on the phone. It's coming on emails. It's the meetings I already know about. Reactive. Yeah. So so that's react mode, response mode, et cetera. Um, Horizon two is what am I able to start to develop as a result of what we're already doing? So where can I go next? Where is the, um, where's the opportunity? Who do I need to talk to? Um, and you know, which connections do I need to make? And, and which priorities do I need to follow? Horizon three is what I would say is the market making space. It's how do I take a step back and see what's actually happening? Where are the gaps that aren't being addressed? Where are the challenges that haven't been faced up to? Um, and I was told uh, relatively early on that if you're in a broad leadership role, you're probably gonna spend something like 50, 60% of your time in one, something like 20, 25% of your time in two and 15% of your time or 15, 20% of your time in three. Um, but if you actually ask people to look at their diaries for last week, um, yeah. what it, they would probably find what I found when I did that, which was I was spending something like 90 to 95% of the time um, doing just responding to events. And in leadership roles, I think we need to do more than that. Absolutely. A couple of final questions because we're nearly out of time. How are you feeling about the next 12 months? And what advice would you give for those of us who might be feeling a bit overwhelmed or lost or maybe a bit of a COVID hangover, COVID hangover as I like to call it? So um, I'm an optimist by nature. And, and that, that, that's what I have. I, um, I was reflecting in preparing for today's conversation. I was thinking about adversity and and, and times I've faced personal adversity, but there's always someone around me who's got a worse challenge than I've got. There's someone who's got a bigger, you know, this chap David has mentioned in uh, Uganda, he will out trump me every day on the challenges he faces. Things yeah. I take for granted every day, he doesn't have access to. So, so, so I've got that perspective. I'm really optimistic about the future. And that's one good thing about working in education and in research, because research is about, solving issues for the future and education is also about nurturing the next generation and i can tell you you're having a bad day just go and have a walk around the university campus and think what happens in there because you'll see um really inspiring ways to teach people um and to encourage them to uh, develop new ideas um but i do think that we have to and i know there's some tension in this uh, in the press at the moment for some people, this is still a crisis. 
there are some businesses which we know that there are going to be changes to some of the economic support and that's going to have a material effect on them. And um, so for those who can move on and move forward, then I think we need to help and encourage them to do that. Um, but we also need to look back over our shoulder and remember that there are still going to be people either in business or in society um, who are still facing challenges. Um, so, so I am optimistic as long as we focus on those that can do work, can, can actually move forward, do move forward, but they look back behind them to make sure that we are putting in the appropriate support and encouragement for others. And in terms of the COVID hang, hangover, someone, there's a book I read, which is called uh, Breathe. And, um, and it's, I can't remember the author, I knew I'd forget it, I forgot to write it down. Um, but basically it talks about the, the fact that we've lost the ability and the focus on breathing and particularly deep breathing and the way in which just taking some time out to stop and pause and reflect and breathe. Um, not only does it help your physiological system it does, it, and your mental health in terms of the, the way your body operates, um, it also encourages you to stop and look. Um, so, so whenever I'm having a hugely stressful moment, I just remember there's always someone who's more stressed than I am. And um, instead of me only focusing on my own stress, I should also focus on how do I make them less stressful? Um, yeah. Is there anything I can do uh, to do that? And if you just take your stress and stretch it out a bit yeah. um, with some breathing and some pausing, um, the immediacy of it and the overwhelming nature of it can change. And one thing that leaders really need to be careful of is leadership can be really lonely at times. And particularly when you're trying to give confidence to your team, but you know that the situation ahead is challenging. Uh, there are a lot of leaders out there who are feeling equally lonely and we can make ourselves less lonely by reaching out through events like this and contacting each other and connecting with each other. Um, but self-investment and self-care is massively important, I think. 100%. And we're out of time. And it's amazing to speak with you as always, Ken. And, um, you know, for taking the time to connect with the community. Ladies and gentlemen, Ken Sloan. This episode of Conversations with Thought Leaders was brought to you by Granite Consulting. To stay up to date with future episodes or access the library of past episodes, register for future events and other valuable resources, follow the Conversations with Thought Leaders LinkedIn page or visit the website at www.cwtleaders.com.